Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In a world where we need instantaneous likes and tweets and that's what's going on, there's a positive side to that, that creativity happens in real time. And that is something that has never happened before. That is Van Graves, executive director of the Brand Center, and he is ours for the hour. So do stay with us. Dear listener, this show airs on NPR member station VPM News, on NPR.org, the NPR One app, and of course, on iTunes at linkfoldyradio.com. Well, folks, you've heard of Van Halen, Van Morrison, Van Helsing, and now in studio with us, Van Graves, executive director of The Brand Center, a two-year master's program focused on marketing, branding, advertising, creative problem solving. He is a three-decade veteran of the ad industry. Van has worked with such storied trademarks as Coca-Cola, MasterCard, the U.S. Army, M&M's, Snickers, Visa. How are you, sir? Wow, that's a lot. Do you tap dance as well? I do. Only on Tuesdays, though. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Well, thank you for finally coming on. (laughs) You you know, you've you've been here for quite some time. You came back to Richmond. We're going to talk about that. Sure. But I've only been throwing pebbles at your window at the Brand Center for the longest time to convince you to come on this show. Uh, take take me back. I mean, you were born and raised in Richmond. Yes, to the Wayback Machine. Yes, born and raised here. Um, just had a birthday, so it was. I realized that it was just. I just celebrated my 30th anniversary of my 21st birthday. So we'll drink Bacardi like ex- it's your birthday. That's how we do it. That's how we do it around here. Um, but yeah, being raised in Richmond, I actually never thought I'd be back. Um, as folks do, you know, you pack up, leave home, and never look back. And what was interesting was um, growing up here, Richmond was a very different town than it is today. Um, it was very uh, old school. You know, people talk about the former capital of the Confederacy, and that was the Richmond I left. Um, two parents that went to Virginia Union not too far from here um, actually was a, they were part of the civil rights movement. Uh, they you know, we're part of the Richmond 34. My father was actually one of the 34, the Richmond 34. Tell me about the Richmond 34. So here in Richmond, there was a, 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 and I remember going as a kid, a great department store called Tallheimer's. And back then, stores were segregated. And so at the uh, lunch counters, African-Americans could not sit at the counter. So many students, more than the 34 that were arrested, many students from Union actually walked over and sat at the counter as a silent protest um, several were arrested, 34 of them, and ended up, it wasn't until, what, two or three years ago that they got their um, records expunged. Um, they were, it was still in the record that um, they had been arrested. You know, and I saw the sign there behind the Dominion Energy Center. It's right there in the parking lot that I think where the Tallheimers used to be back right. in the day in the, in the era of, and we'll go downtown. <laughs> and you've, you know, offline, everybody, Van has already heard me croon several things, including Tina Turner and, um, um, you know, uh, Luther Vandross. And but you're a young guy. You don't know. Oh, another uh, Van, Van Halen, Van Morrison, Vandross. I know them all. I know them all. Uh, so. the, late, the late, great Vandross. But you were, you were talking to me offline also about the story, uh, The Deuce. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jackson Ward here, we had done uh, some live shows initially at the Hippodrome, which, you know, was this vaudeville era theater. The this, this story, Jazz Age history going back to the early 19-teens, mm-hmm. right? And it fell into dereliction, but it had its Jazz Age prime with... Uh, uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and, you know, the Commodores, Cool and the Gang, right. everybody there. But we were told that at one point it was a church. At one point it was a movie theater. At one point it was a house of ill repute. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a metaphor for all of Jackson Ward That's where right. you now live. Yeah. Yeah. Jackson Ward, I mean, used to be the epicenter of African-American culture here in Richmond. 
jazz, music, art, it was there. Um, you know, my great-grandmother grew up not too far away from there. Um, and really where Gilpin Court is in Jackson Ward before the highway was put there, that was also extended out. So even um, the St. Luke's uh, original building for the African-American community, the bank, was over there in that area. And so there's so much that has happened to the area in the last few years that it's been amazing um, to see the growth and the change. But, you know, you had the Eggleston Hotel. You had, so where the Hippodrome was, you know, folks would stay at the Eggleston and it was the funky place in town to hang out, pool halls, and there was a lot of fun to be had and a lot of true culture. And apparently, legend of one of the Wall Streets of the South. That's there correct. was, I mean, we That's talk exactly about right. Maggie Walker, we talk about the community co op insurance company. That's right. That's um, right. The, the family of physicians, the Egglestons, mm-hmm. all of, you know, the pride. Going back on this, and this is a bit of a you know, divergence, but what, what took that on the wrong road? Was it the interstate system? Was it – I mean it was, it was amazing to me that it had a period of, of thriving in spite of the fact that, you know, we are the former capital of the Confederacy. We had that period of Jim Crow in the early 20th century and, and segregation and separated lunch counters. But you had this, this parallel kind of oasis of culture. And when you say how it went awry, you mean as far as why it isn't didn't thrive as much as it did over time? Well, the dereliction, you're always told that into the 60s and 70s, it just fell apart. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, but but it may have fell apart from a cosmetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think people forget that, that the people that live in those communities, they don't change. So services may be taken away. A highway was built through the middle of it. But when you look at you know the church system, you've got Six Mount Zion that's over there and a few others that are there. The community is still there and the heart of Jackson Ward is still there. Now, we have a lot of regentrification that's going on now in the area. But when you look at the locals, you know, that's still strong. So is there a level of poverty? There was a lot of, you know, folks have moved out and sold their homes. Now they're being taken over um, and, and, and taken over in a way that has helped the community in a lot of ways, but has changed the community in a lot of ways. Um, That's been impacted by VCU that's downtown and has done a lot to rebuild the downtown community because it wasn't just Jackson Ward. It also was all of downtown Richmond kind of went through, um, you know, this kind of downturn for, for, I would say, about 10, 15 years. And you left. You graduated high school in 87? I did. I did. <laughs> and you take me back to that. You, you, did you swear it off? You went to Howard? I went to Howard, yes. You took a midnight yes, train to— Ain't no party like an HU party because HU party don't stop. Okay. All right. Just had to put that out there. Very good. <laughs> so you thought you were never coming back? I never thought so. Um, you know, again, you know, but Richmond has evolved and has changed in such a way. I mean, yes, I left Richmond, Virginia, the— former capital of the Confederacy and came back to RVA, which is a much more vibrant, uh, multicultural city, um, a creative city um, that I would have never expected. But I'm really proud of my hometown. Could you tell me about your journey from Howard? Uh, We recently had Michael Paul Williams on the show telling us about his journey from a historically black college to Northwestern Journalism School and uh, the transition from uh, hard Richmond and he also differentiated RVA and Richmond does. But then going off from there and doing everything else you did, we're we're thinking about the ad industry and it's not exactly the most diverse and inclusive historically industry. But how did you break into it? You know, so I started off (laughs) – so let me go in the way back machine a little bit. So I guess my first taste of advertising really was Bewitched on TV. I think a lot of folks got their first taste of what that was, not in, a, not in any real sense of what it was, but kind of understanding what it was. But really in the fourth grade at Ginter Park School in Northside, 
um, there was a competition that was put on by Greater Richmond Transit Company. And that competition uh, allowed students to come up with a slogan. And mine was GRTC, saves gas for you and me. I came in second place. I still wonder who that person was who won first place so I could say, I did it. <laughs> I made it. But um, And just seeing how coming up with ideas was interesting and fun and people supported that. And my parents who came out of the civil rights movement uh, really very, very much like immigrant parents in the way of you can be anything you want if you work hard as long as it's a doctor, a lawyer, or a oh, businessman, yeah. or maybe well. a teacher on yeah. a good day. Yeah. Um, so I'm still dead to my mother, by the way. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Love you. Go, go ahead. <laughs> you know, but, but, but this idea of we've worked hard for you to do anything if we can understand it. And me saying I wanted to be a creative in an advertising industry – I mean, there were crickets. It was, you know, people have the talk with their parents. It's sure. usually around sex. Mine was around advertising, and it was the most uncomfortable conversation that but I had. But you knew as an undergrad at Howard that you wanted to focus in advertising and branding? I, I knew before I went to Howard. And so um, I actually knew in high school after kind of these little dabbles growing up. But I someone put me in touch with Mike Hughes, who was over at the Martin Agency at the time. And Mike – Really, he said, look, if this is something you want to do, leave Richmond, have world experiences. To be great at what you do in this industry is to have experiences that you can apply to your creativity. And I took that advice. I went to Howard. Um, my degree was actually marketing on the business side of things. And then I kind of cobbled together this made-up um, group of elective courses of graphic design um, and did that while I was there and just – fell in love with the creative side. So though I'm a balding middle-aged man now, back then I had platinum blonde hair, two earrings. and <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? So um, which really also made my parents wonder what is wrong with our child. <laughs> but it was a good, you know, but Howard grounded me in something and I didn't realize how much that paid off because as the industry had changed, having business fundamentals as a creative helped me a long way in my career. Um, I then left Howard and went to Pratt Institute in New York um, as a Comd major. Um, I got my master's there. And that was really what opened my mind to all the aspects of creativity. And I had a lot of great professors who were like the old school, here is typography. And, you know, understanding kerning and letting, understanding the beauty of paper that you're printing on. And so the real fundamentals of what design was about. And so I learned that at Pratt. And in the middle of that, in my Pratt experience, I had a chance to um, go to NYU. They had a great summer program for sight and sound film. I did that. And so it just made me fall even more in love with the idea of being a creative in advertising. Um, you directed a movie with Ed Helms in it? Is that <laughs> Well, yeah. So one of those little student films that no one likes to talk about. Yeah, I'm sure he, you know, he's probably rolling his eyes right now if he hears this. But yeah, it was. Uh, we had an assignment for like a two minute film. Um, I was lucky enough to have Ed in my film, and then Mark Webb, who is the director of the Amazing Spider Man, and just you know, who knew that they were going to be these guys back then? It was they were just regular Joes. Really proud of them, and and under they're like. And he's an ad guy. But, you know, it's it's all worked out for everyone. But, you know, that experience really moved me and just like, you know, not just 
the graphic design from Pratt, but also moving pictures and storytelling that I learned at NYU and just all that coming together. And I was able to get an internship at BBDO in New York while I was still at Pratt um, through the MATE program, which is the Minority and Advertising Program. And BBDO is one of the big ad agencies. Yes, classically known as Batten, Barton, Durstein, and Osborne. But yeah. Um, what is the first campaign you worked on as an intern? <laughs> So the first real project that I did as an intern actually was uh, Phil Dusenberry's Dog's Christmas Card. <laughs> okay. uh, I love that look. Um, yeah, so I was an intern. So, you know, the project that you got was, you know, it's not like today where you come in and, you know, you start off with working on big campaigns. That's just not how the world worked back in. So, you know, you were lucky if you made someone coffee or, you know, did more administrative work. And I was – I worked on a personal project for him and I remember there's a book um, that I read while in grad school about how to put your portfolio together, how to break into the industry and it said no job is too small. And I did this side project for him and I'm going to tell you, he was so appreciative. He was like, this is a creative way to approach this idea and this concept um, which was fa la 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 bow wow meow. That is my claim to fame. Um, but he then made it a point to ensure that I had a job at BBDO after I graduated and said, you know, it had other projects for me to work on and said, you know, it's for, for me to get ready because back then they weren't portfolio schools. There wasn't a brand center. Um, and because he wanted me to focus more on what advertising was, yes, I had this great design background from Pratt and, and the things for NYU and the marketing, but it wasn't all brought together. And, you know, I was kind of a project of his. And it, it, it gave This is me... the early 90s in Madison Avenue? Yes, yes, yes. And has any, did anybody anticipate the internet is kind of around the corner? I know we have the screechy modems and CompuServe and AOL by 93, 94. Right. But I'm thinking now talking, you know, as we approach, we're talking around 2020 now and, and everything has been so pulverized and disrupted. You're talking to previously a print journalist who right. thought it's unthinkable that, you know, Newsweek and Time and Fortune wouldn't rule the world, but all of these dominoes have kind of tipped over, and we're going to get into this. The, the hegemony of networks who used to be able to mint money and everything mm -hmm. has been completely smashed into tiny bits, and people are are hustling for nickels and dimes on YouTube right. and on digital instead of the huge, you know, hundred thousand dollar full page ads. Right. Now, I think that you know, if I if, if I you know think about it, I think the biggest turn, I think the the, the canary in the coal mine for a lot of folks was TiVo. And, you know, I remember when our senior leadership was at BBDO at the time, really was concerned about the fact that people could fast forward through, through commercials. And, and I think that was the, the tip of the iceberg. And I think later on when agencies, you had traditional agencies and digital agencies, and they were very separate things. Um, and traditional agencies really wanted to stay traditional. And that was the pride in that. And digital agencies were the more nimble, flexible you know, uh, little brothers that were really kind of making things happen. That that I think was the 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 first real tension around you know what technology is bringing to the industry and how we need to adapt. Um, then agencies kind of came around to the idea of oh wait, you know we've now digital is a part of traditional like it is a part of all of what we do and it's a part of business. So it's not a separate thing, but it actually has to be part of our business model. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Van Graves, executive director of. 
the Brand Center. Uh, he is a, a three-decade veteran of the advertising industry. He's won the Cannes Lion Award, Grand London International Awards, a Grand Clio. Prior to the Brand Center, he was chief creative officer at J. Walter Thompson in Atlanta, EVP of global executive director at McCann, New York. Quite a, a storied career going back to the late Mike Hughes, who you discussed, who kind of said, go out and, and sow your oats. Even then, you didn't expect that this opening would, would happen in, in 2018, and you would be called back to what you yourself said was a very different RVA. Yeah. No, no. It was, you know, I never thought I'd be on the educational side of things. Um, it's very different. It's, you know, being someone who spent time in advertising, understanding the craft and the importance of creative, understanding the importance of being strategic around what you do as a creative um, I never thought that applying that to a job in higher ed would ever be anything that I would do. So I am uh, lucky to be called home to do this and honored to do it. Um, you know, you know, I've had four predecessors who've done a great job of setting the foundation for me, and I'm excited to uh, look forward to the next 25 years of the Brand Center. Now, the Brand Center was initially called the Ad Center, correct? That's correct. Now, just on advertising alone, I wonder, and this show, of course, is full disclosure, how often do you get accosted at cocktail parties and somebody gets a couple of drinks into you and says, Van, it, just be honest with me, between us, is advertising just BS? I mean, the metrics have always been squishy. Um, you know, there's this idea that, that it, it, it's a... It, Agencies of record need to believe the fiction that chief marketing officers need to tell them back and forth that it's working. And because it's always worked, we just keep each other in business until it doesn't work, until the magazines dry up, until there aren't full page ads, until people aren't watching commercials and they're TiVoing through things. I mean, you have to admit that there's a big, great existential rethink right now. Nobody loves banner ads. You know, we, we had Kristen Cavallo on the show and I pointed the same question to her. I know it's a threatening question and it terrifies people. Do these things work? Are now the metrics themselves not dependable? So I think they work. I think they work because you have to realize that you think about our country, you think about our economy. It is a capitalistic society. There's always things to things to sell and to buy. Now, the platforms upon which we sell them, yeah, there's no more print anymore in the same way it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Radio is very different. Now it's called podcast, right? You know, TV is now streamed, but it's still that. So the form changes and people still do react to it. We have to be, you know, especially as we train our students, we have to be polymathic. We have to be able to adapt and grow and have in our toolkits the ability to be flexible. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in advertising. Now, again, it's not what it was years ago. And, you know, you're talking about branding, you're talking about marketing, and they've all converged. I think back in the day, they were very separate things and never talked about as a... Um, a community or toolkit of how you approach business, but now it's uh, it's just as important as ever. You're talking with your students, though, and right, everybody this year is talking about Disney Plus, the six ninety nine a month teaser rate, uh, Netflix, the preferred tier of Hulu, Spotify. These things are all best enjoyed without advertising, right? But people are opting out of advertising. It hurts. Even YouTube red. It hurts. It hurts on the inside. Yeah, no, no, it's true. Cry from me, Van. I it, want you to it, share. <laughs> deep down, it hurts. No, it's true, but it's just taken different forms. You still have product placement. You still have, you know, the things that are going on with Instagram ads. So people are in, so in our consumption of content, how we approach brands is very different, but we're still connecting with them. And brands have to tell a story today like they didn't have before. Brands are a part of, you know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't hear brands 
taking a side on political issues. You would not have taking a stand. But now folks that are investors care about what's going on, how their brands are in the world and what they represent. What about the shock of – and I'm thinking of Kraft Heinz. You may or may not follow it. It's been just a disastrous uh, – Massive merger that was backed by Warren Buffett and another group. Uh, it took a $15.4 billion write-down. People are just not as brand loyal anymore to Heinz Ketchup or the other things of, you know, they're they're willing to buy things off-label. I'm sure you've been to an Aldi grocery store where a lot of millennials and Gen Zers are, you know, much more interested in just getting things that are no-frills. Amazon has its own thriving no-frills Amazon Basics labels brand. Uh, this is a problem because there's so much goodwill put into these brands. When right. you make a massive acquisition like this, a big chunk of it is the the, the holding value of the goodwill. Mm-hmm. And now people are wondering that, you know, you, you see things in CVS. There are kind bars. There are other things that have four or five ingredients on it. And there's a giant rethink with the big consumer packaged goods companies. Like, are we far too invested in brands that meant something to the 1990s and 80s and 70s in the middle of the grocery store while – uh, everybody else is kind of taking mindshare. Right. Well, the reality is, though, Aldi still has brands. There's still brands out there. Now, brands have to grow and adapt. They have to change to a changing marketplace. But the reality is the brands aren't going away. They're just morphing and adapting to the culture of the buyer today, which millennials are thinking differently. So I remember in the early 80s, everyone was doing generics, which is kind of where we are today, but except it was – you know, a white package with black I letters. It was like austerity driven. Yeah, exactly. exactly. During morning yes. in America yeah. and stagflation and that's right and everything else like that. This is kind of just opting out. This is maybe a bit informed initially by the Great Recession, correct? And and millennials' choices and millennials being broke, entering the workforce and whatnot. You can mm-hmm. backwards <laughs> analyzing at times a million, that's you know, right. for, that's for right. panels. But um, it it does kind of make you wonder, right? Well, we have to. I mean, we have to rethink. You know. The consumer base, because millennials are a very different group of people, you know, and and they are our student base. And the funny thing about even at the brand centers, I you know, faculty, staff, we learn from our students as well. Because you're right, the approach to brands and the relationship to brands isn't what it used to be. And so that adaptability has to be not only from the advertisers, but also the folks in advertising agencies, the folks that run brands, the CMOs as well, um, because there is no charted course yet. And we're still figuring it out and, and still adapting to it. You know, there's a stat in parallel to this is what's happening in, in cord cutting where um, just, you know, to f- further explain it for our listeners, where you're cutting out the likes of Comcast, AT&T, U-verse, Verizon, Fios and saying, no, you are not picking out my channels for me and charging me 150 bucks a month and a cable box and everything. I want you just for your broadband Wi-Fi connection, whether I use Roku or Apple TV, and I'm going to go and uh, opt in to the streaming services that I want. According to Lightman Research Group, the top pay TV providers now account for about 85 million subscribers. The top seven cable companies have 46.1 million video subscribers. Satellite TV services have 26.3 million subscribers. That means another approximately 34 million paid TV subscribers could be at risk of canceling their service. Um, And now all of these guys, as you know, are trying to race Mm -hmm. Comcast with Peacock Streaming, CBS Digital. They're trying to go in and and belatedly recapture the money with streaming packages. Right. Um, And and we're all worried about this kind of creep. At what point do you a la carte build it and end up with $150, $60 total of bills at the end of the month? you're You're back at square one, right? How much does that worry you? 
It doesn't worry me because, again, businesses as brands also have to evolve. And so, yes, you're, you're talking about Comcast, you're talking about other brands that way, but you have to think about the fact that Hulu, Netflix are emerging brands. It's not even emerging anymore. They're brands that are out there that have just changed the marketplace. So, you know, what's the old saying? If you don't evolve, you dissolve. And so there has to be the marketplace drives evolution. And if you don't push yourself as a brand, you will fall behind. I just watched three hours of The Irishman on Netflix. <laughs> uh, my brother's login, by the way. Thanks, bro, for letting me mooch continuously. There wasn't a single brand in it. I mean, maybe Texaco got a product placement or something. I, again, I'm paying for the premium experience of having to avoid this. Right. Because of the DVR, which you go back to the TiVo experience, we um, – you know, what are the things that are mandatory live viewing right now? Sports? Maybe some of the networks tried like Peter Pan live right, right. or uh, what was a reboot of uh, All in the Family live? I mean, it was yeah, kind of yeah. painful to watch. Um, but that's a, but those are part of the learning process, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, and maybe I am nostalgic for for old school, but I'm excited about new school. And so having kind of grown up in the industry in the 90s, you know, you see and you look at where we were as far as brands and how um, folks engaged with media as a whole back in the day versus today. I mean, we we were passive engagers, right? So it came on TV. You Your whole family sat around TV to watch All in the Family or whatever, and you'd break, and that was it, and you'd go to the bathroom or whatever. Now you can fast forward through whatever you can do because— You can binge an entire season on Hulu. Exactly, because— you know, millennials have power because technology has given folks power today, and not just millennials, but have given folks power today to really engage with their entertainment and how they consume it. And that's new. And we're all trying to figure that out. I don't think anyone has nailed it. I think some folks have done it better than others. Um, but I just feel like that's a constant thing because you never know. I mean, if you think about it, what if we all said, hey, there's this cool thing called social media. Let's figure out what it's going to be like. It's important to focus in on it. And so we dumped all of our money and time and effort in um, MySpace versus Facebook. That's true. Right? So, but, you know, very similar platforms, but one has done phenomenally well and the other one hasn't. And so that's what I mean when I'm talking about kind of survival of the fittest and what the evolution looks like. But Facebook as a brand in and of itself has evolved even over the last five or ten years. So it's how you change your business and how you move that direction. You know, Van, I believe that the children are the future. You teach them well and let them lead the way. And in your case, you're talking about your students. This is the perfect transitional device for you to tell me about the power of the students. And this is beyond millennials at this point. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of the story of someone who I admire quite a bit, and I'd love by way of by flattery to invite him on the show, is Marquez Brownlee, which you might know as MKBHD. This guy was born in December of 1993, and he posted up, uh, you know, he joined YouTube in March of 2008. He first started uploading technology videos in January 2009. I mean, he's a... He was a student, I believe it was at the Stevens Institute or something in New Jersey, and his reviews just became so, so popular that over time he has over 9 million subscribers, 1.40 billion total video views. In 2013, the former senior VP of social for Google called Marquez Brownlee, quote, the best technology reviewer on the planet right now, close quote, mm -hmm. which I think must have been terrifying to the New York Times, the Wall Street right. Journal, to Newsweek, right. all these people that thought they had a lock. Um, and, and this poor kid, he's not a kid anymore. He's, you know, 25. Right, he's getting right. all this swag from Samsung and Apple and Tesla. I'm a little but envious. That yeah. illustrates the power of one person mm -hmm. and 
the no-cost, low-cost platform of YouTube. And we know with the advent of the smartphone, everybody is carrying a, an HD camcorder in their pocket right now. They can record podcasts and the like on that. That must be both um, fascinating and terrifying to your student base. These um, situations of people coming in having already been ninjas in high school and college. No, I, you know, I, I don't think necessarily terrifying. I think what it does is, again, it keeps you, it keeps you gully, right? It keeps you on your toes and trying to figure out what the next thing is. Did an I, academic just use gully? Did I? <laughs> I did. Um, you know, you, you've got to really, you know, again, you've got to stay fresh. The one thing that has been consistent um, through this industry as a whole is you've got to be, keep things fresh. You've got to, you know, things are always shifting and moving. You've got to, you know, you've got to be ahead of it. You can't be chasing it. Um, if you're chasing it, it's way too late. And, you know, you're right. The smartphone has changed everything. And so creativity is commerce. Commerce is creativity. What does that look like? You know, you monetize certain things now. You monetize YouTube. That's changing. And so we constantly have to figure out how, and our students are, they're doing it every day. How do we make content? How do we make creativity? How do we problem solve in a way that services our brand, services our clients? Many of our students, they not only work for big agencies anymore. They work for, for platforms. They work for Facebook. They work for Google. They work for Spotify. Um, our students are working for consultancies. So it's changed. All of it's changed. So even the academic side of things Many of our students now are focusing in on being entrepreneurs themselves. So they're picking up their cell phones and creating content in their own way because none of it's prescribed anymore. And again, we're dealing with now one and two generations of folks that are looking at how do we create and build on our own terms. I mean, it's a true disruption of the printing press and the means of distribution and production. It's, exactly right. Again, anybody can post these things to YouTube, to Libsyn, to SoundCloud. I mean, talk about podcasting. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. now has become kind of a mandatory skill set for any corporation. That's right. You know, you want to have a specialty in something. You could go on Twitter or Instagram and see endless ads of, about a corporate podcast on the future of innovation. Goldman Sachs, I mean, you cannot possibly block them on LinkedIn. <laughs> They're out there doing these interviews all the time. These right. were things that were supposed to be, um, they were non-core. They were decidedly like you might have a creative agency come in and do them for right. a shop. But now if you come in, I guess they they don't just expect their advertising uh, agency of record to do these things. They're, they're breaking up that commitment into several different things, both in-house and out-house. That's correct. And there's so there's so much to what's happening with brands bringing things in-house. I mean, people weren't talking about TikTok a year ago or two years ago, and now that's a part of where folks are shifting. Less folks are talking about, at least um, younger folks are less talking about Facebook. They're not interested. Um, you know, now the interest in Instagram, same thing. So... You know, I, I may sound like a broken record, but understanding the ability to be adaptive and flexible is what is key to the survival of of brands and this industry as well. How much have you studied Little Nas X and Old Town Road? Because, I mean, <laughs> that also more. was done over Hustle and YouTube. And right. Is that a case study for our times, like the I, biggest hit of 2019 coming in? It had been a crazy year that way, too, because nobody expected – uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich to, right. to question the hegemony of Chick-fil-A. Right. And then what else was the thing? I, I like to say uh, hard seltzer. Like if I told you the beginning of 2019, you're like, I'm going to tell you right now, son, uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich, hard seltzer, and a um, 
uh, a, a gay cowboy uh, of African American <laughs> background partnering with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus. M- yeah, Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes. I mean, you yeah. cannot predict these things. You can't get your hands no, out. But I think that's what makes it all exciting. You know, there's a level of, you know, or taking away the, the predictability of it all. You never know what is a hit. Like you can sit in a room and, and strategize and it still be a flop. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's this song that, you know, like Old Town Road. I mean, my kids are singing that, right? Nonstop I mean, it's, this year with my kids. Yeah, over and over again, which, you know, I... I but could I, you have taken out metrics or used like a, a marketing agency or business school, you know, uh, a brand sizing strategy to have predicted like, yeah, this will be the year of the, you know, the the rap country crossover thing. I mean, but that's the excitement. Again, that's the excitement of it all. The fact that there is still a level of randomness and, and accidental creativity. And, you know, Lil Nas X, you know, part of it was he was already trying to find out what his thing was on, in, in the social media side of things. And, hey, let's do this thing. And by the way, the song, which was then rejected by the country country music yeah. community. So Billy Ray was like, no, I'm, I'm getting down with this and, you know, help to, to shift it because that's the other part about it. You can be adaptive in real time now. So you can throw hop in a studio and re, redo a song pretty quickly and it not only be a hit, but it's a hit twice because, you've, you know, you've taken it to the next level. So bravo. But it's it's that's where, you know, in a world where we need instantaneous likes and tweets and that's what's going on, there's a positive side to that. That creativity happens in real time. And that is something that has never happened before. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't, can't tell, tell me nothing. nothing. <laughs> Full disclosure on Robert Farzad, you're listening to the uh, musical stylings of Van Graves, the executive director of the Brand Center. He's been there since August of uh, 2018. When am I allowed to reveal that your family is finally going to be coming here in 2020? Yes. So not much. I mean, we, you know, my family is a private family. All right. It's Uh, a private family. All right. but a, but a family for money. No, you know, it's a... <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> no, no, no. Man, you get uh, me yeah, so well. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's what I can't say. It's really exciting. Um, you know, I've been commuting back and forth um, to Richmond and now fully engaged with and excited that my family will be here in the summer, um, which makes life a lot easier when you don't have a commute just to hug your kids. So mm. I'm excited about that. Um, and... You know, I don't know. It's, my, it's it's not a lot to say about that except for the fact that, you know, family is important to me. I mean, again, especially here in Richmond, since I, you know, I've grown up here, great grandparents, great, great grandparents. Um, you know, my wife and I, are, my wife, who I met in New York City while in advertising through someone in Richmond um, introduced us. And so Richmond is our is our spot. So to be able to have everyone here is is crazy and awesome. And you may ask yourself how you got back to a place that was an abandoned belt factory carriage house, the picture of dereliction there, the downtown <laughs> expressway. Now it's kind of like a gorgeous Googleplex-like thing. I encourage everybody, if you can, get a tour of the Brand Center. I mean, th- there was really nothing there before. There's a there's a portrait inside that shows like tumbleweed. Yes. I yes. mean, all the whole Monroe Park development Uh area and that that area is just being built left and right you're right behind the jefferson hotel that's right you're near a corridor there's brand new creativity back in what they call the arts district Mm -hmm. right quirk hotel uh the resurgent theater scene 
It's a funky area. I mean, it's great. I mean, the interesting thing about that and talking to family about, so my uh, great-grandfather used to work at the Jefferson and worked in that building when it was a carriage house for the Jefferson. Get out! Yeah. So so it's, you know, when I walk in, the, the, you know, in many ways it's a religious experience and a per- very personal experience for me um, to, to, to be in the building and, you know, talk about full circle, right? So... That's awesome. And then seeing what the area has become over the last few years, because right, it was really um, that building, that space was the vision of one of my predecessors, Rick Boyko, and how do we, and he also helped to rename the brand, so like, how do we make sure we stay relevant? And, you know, we've been able to not only stay relevant, but to grow and thrive in this area that is now thriving around us as well. Van, I want to get into the advice portion of the show. Sure. The extent we have you here, and we want to have you on the show again. Uh, what what do you say to students who seek you out, uh, both high school people, uh, relatives, nephews, nieces, <laughs> uh, people who are considering the Brand Center, people who are later in their careers? I mean, what what there has been since the worst of the Great Recession, a big rethink of the rate of return on a college education and all the debt that goes with it and being saddled for debts for jobs that maybe in previous generations might have serviced that debt. But everybody's second-guessing that right now. And that obviously includes includes uh, grad school, and especially if you're worrying about continued disruption of broadly writ large advertising, marketing, and branding. Why would you, you know, you're making the case to someone to come to the brand center. You're also making the case to companies to recruit from the brand center. How do you do that? You know, very carefully. No, you know, the brand center is a unique place. And, you know, we have stayed small and continue to stay small for the reason of we want to ensure that our students have a curated experience. We want to make sure that, you know, we have each incoming class has about 100 students. Um, We don't want to do too much more than that because we really want to make sure that we can focus on our students. Um, Because, you know, the idea of printing degrees is nothing that we're interested in doing. And so that curated experience includes everything from helping them understand and deal with the stresses and craziness of what this industry can do. Because being a creative um, and, and all of our students, be it a creative brand management student or a strategist student, is just as creative as a copywriter or an art director um, – you know, we're making sure that they can deal with the fact that you can't fall in love with your own work, right? You've you've got to be okay with there more there are a lot more no's on the creative side of things of business than yeses. And so how do you cope with that? How do you answer the business question for your client? How do you and so what we focus in on is not necessarily building a portfolio, which you do get a portfolio leaving the brand center. We focus on really building the cognitive understanding of business, of brands, of creativity, how they all come together. How do you creative problem solve? How do you, you know, become a creative problem seeker as much as a problem solver? Because not always do your clients come to you with a problem. You know, a part of your job today is, hey, how do I make my business better? How do I think about my business? How do we want the world to think about our businesses? And so, we train our students for that. So we have a, a unique program. It's not necessarily for everyone. It is graduate school. It's not easy. Um, you know, and and when we do interviews with students to um, join us at the Brand Center, we talk about that. And we really want them to be ready for it because it's, it's, it's 
it's a challenging program because, you know, to your point, they're challenging times in this industry and we want them to be ready. We want our students to be polymathic. We want our students to um, think in ways they've never thought before. You know, we're not focusing on teaching them how to deal with a particular platform. We're trying to build them a toolkit to approach any creative problem in front of them down the road. So what is an example? Like a, what, what if a huge consumer packaged goods company comes there or a Google or a platform company? Everybody has such different needs right now. What do they see in the value proposition? And you place, you know, your graduates have a high placement rate in terms yeah. of getting jobs and some luminaries out there in the field. Uh, give me some great examples of how this worked in the, in, in the current environment of disruption across various industries. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Our students are, and you mentioned Netflix earlier. I mean, we've got a great copywriting student who works right now at Netflix. Because we're not, we're uh, platform agnostic. It's it's really about how they approach things, how they learn, how they apply those things. Matter of fact, not too long ago, we had Howard Jordan, who is the student I was mentioning, um, who works at Netflix and uh-huh. working on several shows for Netflix. And, you know, you know, having this is where the benefit of the brand center to your earlier question around, you know, how do you, you know, what do you say to students? The fact is the brand center's biggest asset really is its alumni base. And that alumni base touches across, um, again, many ranges, but also many of them are entrepreneurs. So they're also making and creating um, not only content, but also products, um, and I don't know how much I can get into that, so I'm going to steer a little bit away from that. But, you know, what I can say is the Brand Center experience for our students is multi-layered. And not only are they focusing in on their work with their specific tracks, um, but our alums come in as teachers. We just hired two professors um, who were alums who've worked in the industry. Turn it around. Tell me what you're learning from the students themselves. It's a constant learning process. You're talking, you know, in, in 2019, I mean, people who were born at the turn of the century, roughly, who are coming and telling you that this is the next TikTok or this is the next level of this, or influencers, we're going to be looking back at Instagram and saying that that's, that's as risible as MySpace. Right, like, what's right. the next big thing coming down the pipe? Yeah, I, you know, th- I have to admit, there's many conversations where I think that, you know, I know that, I shouldn't think that, they're teaching me, they're teaching all of us, because there are things that they're dealing with. It's, it's interesting. I think there's actually this trend to go backwards. I think that there is um, this trend to move away from technology and learn hand skills. It's interesting. You know, I had a, a student today really talking about, um, I, I understand that we can type things and create things online, but how do I do a thumbnail? Like, what is a thumbnail? And, mm. and showing it, how do you sketch out an idea? How do you build an idea? And just seeing how they really do want to step away from their computers or technology and make and craft and create outside of kind of what we've assumed the direction will be. And, and I think that that's really been something that has been amazing to me because as we're moving forward and we start talking about platforms and what we build around that, they're kind of moving away from it. I think that there is uh, this idea of, you know, uh, not, of kind of big brother in the sense of I don't – my creativity does not have to be expressed or validated mm. on social media 
for me to be okay with it. And there's kind of a taking back of who they are and they don't want to give that much of themselves out into the world unless they want to and choose to. And it's interesting to, to see how that's happening in, 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 at least in our students. Van, from the traditional you know, agency of record perspective, it seems like for the better part of a decade, every agency account has been under review. <laughs> This is a, the sword of Damocles. Like I said before, it's one thing, you know, it used to be that one one brand would stick with one shop for the longest mm-hmm. time to take care of all these various responsibilities. Now you're smashing it into bits, giving social media to somebody, giving, uh, uh, you know, magazines and other things to others, giving events and podcasts to someone else. When, when and if do we get past the point that this is always going to be one of the most cyclical industries out there, that companies have been trained to say the instant we hit – hard economic waters is that's when the advertising and branding budget gets eviscerated. I'm not sure if we'll get past it. Um, you know, the, the reality is it's still, you know, money driven, right? And so if product isn't selling, if things aren't moving, budgets need to be cut. And quite frankly, as, you know, external servicers, as many agencies are, you're going you're gonna to cut an external provider or vendor before you cut anything internally. So I think that that's, you know, unfortunately built into the business model. Um, you know, I have to say though, and and there's some folks who will disagree, that there was something about having many things under one roof. If you really want to tell a clear story, I think from a client's perspective and from a, a marketing CMO perspective, you're spending a lot of time now of dealing with four or five different places to tell the same story and make sure it's cohesive. I think that's a a lot. And I think if you find the right place, um, you know, you can do some great work under one roof. Um, and, but, but I think that the power of having options has also allowed CMOs to actually spend less money, um, focusing on what's important. So, Hey, you know what, maybe we're not doing classic content. Maybe we're only doing a podcast. And so we want to focus on who does that well. And I think that that a la carte approach is, is going to be the future, even though I do, like I said, maybe because I came up in the, the old school way, um, of kind of under one roof, I think there are benefits of both, um, and really figuring out kind of what's best is, is kind of the challenge for CMOs today. Talking about CMOs, what about this idea out there that the chief marketing officer itself is increasingly becoming an optional title in the C-suite, that that's something that you can farm out and break into several different pieces? Uh, I'm not trying to force anyone out of their jobs, but, you know, I think, I, I think that it's, it's a reality. I mean, you know, I think that everyone has become much more savvy around creativity around what works with a brand, around storytelling. Um, and because of those things, you know, I'm not saying that the need of a CMO isn't there by no means, but what they do I think has changed. Um, and if you're approaching that role as someone did even five years ago, it's it's not going to work. The holiest question for the longest time, I mean, your predecessors have faced it at the Brand Center as well, is how do you inject diversity into this industry? Oh, my. It's uh, I mean, it's forever they've been criticized. I'm thinking back to, you know, everybody's always going to ask you about Mad Men. That's never going to stop <laughs> because that, that, by the way, was so unlikely. If somebody came to you in the early aughts and said that there's going to be this super polished, expensive series on a on a second-tier cable network about the advertising industry and its smoke-filled heyday and everything, you would have said that's laughable. They use it as a vessel to tell another story. And now everybody – you talk about Christmas season, cocktail party season. Like you're going to have to be answering about this show forever. 
But it does point to a time where this was such a monolithic industry and an industry that, like many others, has dealt with its uh, Me Too crises. You saw it with the Martin Agency and its you know, team there and its reckoning there. How do you encourage people to come into this, diversify it, considering the extreme cyclicality of it and how monolithic it's been in the past? Okay, that's a scary question. I should leave now. No, I'm kidding. You know, it's because we see blowups, yeah, man. Yeah, we see ads yeah. that are then pilloried, like the one this Christmas season. Everybody's talking about. I'm sure you heard is like the the Peloton ad. Yeah. With yeah. how dare you ask you know, your give give the gift? Oh, of, honey, look. Am I am I looking better than I did at the beginning yeah. of the year? Just looking gorgeous, January one. Looking the same, similarly gorgeous <laughs> at the end of the year. And there's got to be a tone deafness. Or when people, you know, certain magazine covers in the past that have been tone deaf because you clearly had a monolithic group of eyeballs looking at that. You know, uh, and it may not have been. The interesting thing is it may not have been a monolithic group of folks. Um, and that's why, you know, when we talk about this idea of diversity, it's really about representation in the room and having more than just one. You know, having one woman or one minority because you're not going to feel comfortable speaking up because then, you know, Bob or Sally or whomever becomes the bad guy because all of a sudden, you know, she represents everyone from her gender or he represents everyone from his race. And you really have to have, um, you know, diversity built into the culture as a whole and not be this idea of diversity theater where hey, we look like a classic Benetton ad, but really have stakeholders that are of diverse backgrounds, um, different genders, different identities, because that's when true change really happens. Um, At the Brand Center, you know, it's important for us, you know, we realize that this industry and, and many of our, the recruiters that work with the Brand Center have asked us, what are you doing with diversity? What does that mean? How do you approach that? And, you know, we train qualified students. And what we realize is to bring in qualified students of a diverse base, we have to do better with scholarships. We have to do better with funding because it's not that these folks don't exist. They do exist. I was one of them. Um, But having the opportunity to go to school like a brand center, we have to work and have been working to ensure that, you know, we as a pipeline to the industry have diverse students so that when recruiters do come, they see students that are diverse across the board to hire into their ranks because we're not going to solve this by one program. We're not going to solve this over, you know, a two or three year period. It has to be a focused effort across the board. And the brand center, the faculty and staff, we're committed to that. And, you know, we look at our numbers and are really proud of the direction we're moving in. So, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's something that's going to take time. It's going to take time. And, you know, reference to Mad Men, you know, if you think about it, you know, we only look at only part of the story. So no one talks about, you know, folks like George Olden, who was a creative at BBDO and McCann back in the 60s. Um, You know, Carolyn Jones, um, no one talks about. So there are people there that we also don't, our heroes aren't diverse people, even though they were in this industry. You know, Carolyn Jones um, and her team, I guess when she was back at Mingo Jones, did We Do Chicken Right for KFC. You look at folks like Harry Weber who did um, Stuck on Band-Aid back in the day. You know, we don't hear these stories, but these are things that were going on and have been going on from a diverse group of people. So these are a part of uh, advertising culture that also need to be illuminated in ways that it's never been done before. 
You know, in a few minutes we have left, I'd love to talk about the uh, overlap. Now, you talked about Netflix previously, but there seems to be a blurring of lines between journalism and uh, brands, branded content specifically. I'm, th- you know, the Meredith Coppett Levy at the New York Times is they built T Studio, which I, I remember. You know, Netflix when uh, Orange Is the New Black, one of the seasons came out. They commissioned a very polished mini documentaryette about uh, women in prison. Um, you see, everybody, you know, the old Time Inc. properties have branded studios now as they are diversifying and integrating into what was formerly the province of ad agencies, how much are you being asked to increasingly foray into journalism? I mean, your students, for example, if they have podcasting abilities, Mm -hmm. if they have production abilities, they could be called into PBS or NPR. And that's true. And, you know, and it's funny you mentioned T-Brands because one of our director's council members, one of our advisory council members um, is a president of T-Brand Studios and has asked questions around that and ensuring that our students are ready because that is... That's a reality. It's it's not just making ads anymore. It's making content that is engaging. It's making content, selling stories that people can engage in. And it's the expectation of our hiring managers. So are there are there you know public and it's it's a still an existential question for newspapers, for magazines that are belatedly having to go into video and other things. Are you getting um, these overtures from these these publishers and these media companies to kind of come in? Right now, light touches, but not in the way that, you know, I think it's coming. I don't think it hasn't been a full, full fledged, uh, full court press. What about these platforms that you talk about? I mean, this is a, this is the lament of people is that the platforms have taken over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're Facebook or Twitter, there's now this duopoly. All of the, the honey of advertising has been sucked in by Google and Facebook. And, you know, it's kind of a drink your milkshake type thing. Right. Um, and, but we're now beholden to platforms and big tech, five or six or seven, you know, maybe four or five of these companies, whether it's your iCloud account, you know, your Amazon Prime account, Facebook wants you watching highly polished series here. Uh, Twitter is doing something. Amazon wants to maybe get Thursday night football. Have we become beholden to these platforms? Yeah, but, you know, I I go back to an earlier theme, which is these platforms are just like networks used to be back in the day, right? Mm. It's it's share of eyeballs, right? How can we get people to look at our stuff so we could sell it? How do we we make that happen? So though it's packaged differently, I think how it's being approached and dealt with is very much the same. How do we get people to look at the stuff we make? What is engaging? How do we do it? How do we break it down? And so I don't think that part of the story has changed. the thing about it is, though, to your point, there's so much of it. There's so much noise. How you up your game and how you can get folks to pay attention is much harder than it was years ago. And I think that is really where people are looking for, like you mentioned, the Irishman. People are looking for things that are truly engaging versus eye candy and flash. And that's where, you know, and we, we come in on the brand center side of telling stories, narratives that are real, that are human-based and not hey, look at this, aren't we cool? Because it's not selling anymore. No one cares about that. If there is going to be a backlash to the platforms and big tech and curated content is going to be very important, privacy is going to be important, mm-hmm. what can your students do? What can the brand center do uh, to kind of be at the vanguard of that? You know, I think our students have already started to think about that and kind of, you know, how do they want to be good citizens? I mean, we talk about big tech. I mean, that's that's business. And that is kind of, you know, we've monetized people's privacy. And they're much more private, but they also, our students, want to 
ensure they do great work. And they're figuring out ways to really approach that creatively. And do they have an answer? Do we have an answer at this point? Absolutely not. Because, you know, you're right. It's it's big business. It's big money now. I think that the reckoning comes, you know, in five, ten years where, you know, students, students I, I think consumers are just going to opt out as much as they can. We're not on the brink of that right now. I mean, the election, aren't you amazed that people go back at that and it's like, wow, you you bamboozled me then. And but not only him. that, we've slapped him on the wrist several times. He's gone in front of Congress. The stock is always near an all-time high. Right. But because it's entertainment in and of itself, which is, you know, I mean, it's actually created its own content, right? So even all the, the crazy, for some reason, our political landscape is based in Twitter and soundbites, and how quickly I can get it on Instagram. And it's become a part of it. You know, there, there are news agencies that are making money off of, hey, so-and-so said this versus that. Hey, well, that's not real. That's fake. And so even that in and of itself has become a uh, financial benefit for folks, right? Uh, scary dystopian times. I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how yeah. crazy the world is and that you said it was your grandfather who worked at the carriage house of the Jefferson Hotel, which fell into dereliction. Uh, by the time you were uh, a young kid, what, in Jackson Ward? Mm -hmm. And now you are the executive director of said internationally renowned brand center uh, that converted that carriage house into a gorgeous academic facility. Any other predictions from your crystal ball? Is there going to be a backlash, a backlash to the backlash? The things that you get, mm. the, you know, what, what, what should I have asked you today? Put it that way. I mean, I think you've asked a lot of great questions. Uh, you that's know, why I get paid. The that's, big that's, <laughs> you know, it's really, you know, it's the, I mean, the crystal ball is what is the future of creativity and what does that look like? Um, and I really feel like it's going to be a move away from, you know, what I can do within a pl the platforms. Um, I think about what creativity looked like. You know, when the Mona Lisa was created, you know, you take two years to create one painting and you've got now artists that are worried about how many likes they have on Instagram and the, st and the stress around that. And I think that there's going to be a nexus of I just want to be creative. I just want to make and I just want to enjoy. And I, you know, and I think that years ago when people talked about kind of this idea of a hipster movement, I think that folks will start to look at. Let's go back to the basics. You know, folks are looking for, and I see it in our students, a level of decency, a level of respect, a level of communication uh, around views that we disagree with. And I, so I just – I see a move back to civility and, and human contact versus likes and friends online to – really connecting with people. Um, and I see that with our students. Van Graves, it's great that Richmond has you back. Thank Good you so much back. for joining us. Van Graves, Executive Director of the Brand Center. You are always welcome on this show. Great to be here. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this show on NPR member station VPM News on NPR.org and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are platform agnostic podcasters of record. Eyeballs, eardrums, bring it on. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>